you bow your heads with me and join me in a word of prayer? Let's join together in saying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we do praise you because you are our Savior, you are our King, you are alive, reigning in the Father's right hand. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is here, and because your Spirit is here, you are here. Lord Jesus, we come to you as your redeemed people. We can't come in our own good deeds, or our own good merits, because frankly we have none. But we come in the righteousness of Jesus, who obeyed the law perfectly for us, who was crucified for our sins, who was raised for our justification. We come robed in his righteousness because of what he did for us, and only because of what he did for us can we come into your presence, God, and be your children. And so we thank you for this great salvation that you've given to us in Christ and the boldness with which we can come into your presence, not, no more as enemies and sinners, which is what we are in and of ourselves, but now in Christ we come to you as your beloved, forgiven children. And so, Lord, as your beloved, forgiven children, we come into your presence to ask for many things. Lord, we pray for this world, which is so broken and riddled with problems. Our minds as Americans are... Uh, we think of Afghanistan and Iraq where we're particularly involved. Lord, we give you thanks that yesterday, for the first time ever in the history of Afghanistan, there were free elections. Lord, we pray that you might protect that, that new work of freedom that's begun there. And Lord, we pray for more of that in the, that broken country of Iraq. We pray, Lord, for peace. We pray, Lord, for unity. We pray, Lord, for an end to violence and brutality. Lord Jesus, we, we pray that the gospel might flourish in those nations. Lord, pull back the veil of Islam that blinds the minds of the people. Help them to see that Jesus was not just a great prophet, but that he was the Son of God, our Savior. That they might put their faith in him, not just as a, a holy man of the Bible, but as the very Son of God. Help them to believe that he really was crucified, that he really was raised. Lord Jesus, we pray for our own nation as we come to this election cycle that you would help us, Lord, to, um, to honor you with the way we conduct ourselves as a nation. We pray, God, that you would put someone in the White House and someone in Senate seats and congressional seats, people who honor your word, people who believe in harmony with your truth. We know, Lord, that there really is no such thing as separation of church and state. We all take all our beliefs everywhere we go. And whoever is in that White House is going to take all of his religious beliefs and they're going to impact all of his decisions. And so, Lord, we pray for someone who uh, believes uh, according to your word. And we ask, God, that that's what you would establish throughout this country in positions of leadership that, so that we might be at peace, we might be led wisely and in ways that are honoring to you. And, Lord, we pray for our own area here on the South Shore for the spread of the gospel, for the strengthening of many churches. Lord, I pray for First Baptist in Weymouth, for Calvary Chapel, for North River Community Church, for Community Baptist Church, for South Weymouth Church of the Nazarene, and more churches that I could think of right now. 
Bless them, Lord, as they preach your word. Lord, we pray for you to be at work in the Roman Catholic Church. God, we pray especially as a church has been through so many crises the past, these past couple of years. Lord, bring reformation and revival. Bring that church to focus on the word of God as its foundation. Lord, I pray the same thing for our church. Our church is not immune from any problems. Our church is really just a house of cards, except that your spirit upholds us. And so, Lord, we pray, be at work at South Shore Baptist. Protect us from the evil one. Help us to love each other deeply in this church. Help us to be kind in the way we treat and speak to one another. Help us to treat each other as children of the King. Lord, help us to be loving and warm toward outsiders. Help us to have a real compassion for those who don't know Christ. Help us to be unswervingly committed to biblical truth as a church and toward missions and the lost. Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is hurting, that through your word they would receive comfort. I pray for anyone who is at a crossroads and looking for a direction, that you would give them wisdom on decisions that have to be made from your word. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, that you might show them your glory this morning through your word. And now, Lord, as we open up the Bible, as we read your word, we thank you for this word, which is not just a human book, it's not just a religious book, it's the very words of God written. We pray that as we open up your word, that your spirit would speak to our hearts. We don't simply want our heads to be filled with more biblical facts. We want our hearts and our lives to be transformed. So we pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, any children here, kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to Children's Church, which you can find uh, through the door over here by the piano. With the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 714. I am encouraging you to bring your own Bibles to church. If you have your own Bible at home, please bring that rather than using a pew Bible. I want you to get familiar with your own Bibles and underline and circle things and get into your own Bibles. But if you didn't bring one, then turn to that pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 40, verse, uh, page 714. And today we're going to study verses 6 through 8. Isaiah 40, 6 through 8 says... A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. I'm really excited to uh, preach on these three verses. Uh, these are three verses that have for a long time been important to me. I first uh, noticed these verses when I was in high school and I was studying, reading through this passage and they just jumped out at me. In fact, I have my, my Bible I grew up with here and it's, it's highlighted in yellow. It's you know, one of those verses you highlight because something speaks to you from it. And Actually, when I was in high school, I memorized these verses because they... They had such an impact on me. And I'm trying to figure out why I, I love these verses so much. I think it's because through very simple language and simple imagery, we find the profound contrast between God and humanity. The, the almost eternal chasm that exists between human weakness and human frailty and human impotence on the one hand and divine power on the other hand. 
between the, the temporality of humanity and the eternity of God's Word. And there's something about when you can really see how small and weak we are and how great and awesome God is. It just like clarifies life and puts it all into perspective very quickly. And whenever I need one of those perspective checks on reality, this is one of those verses you can go to and be reminded of how things really stand. So on the one hand, there's humanity. It says in verse 6, A voice says, Cry out. And I said, What shall I cry? All men are like grass. You know how grass is. Uh, I don't know. Some of you have a love-hate relationship with your lawn. I have an ongoing uh, love-hate relationship with my grass. And, uh, you know, when grass is going good, it's really good. And, you know, when it's lush and green... My new strategy, basically, I adopted this year for my lawn, is I just basically soak it with fertilizer all the time. I probably hit it with fertilizer about five or six times a year now in the summer just, just to get it nice and thick. That's the only thing that works is just feed it to death. And, and when it's green, it's wonderful. And you go away on vacation, you're driving away, and there's your lush green lawn. You're like, mm, look at that. Come back from vacation, brown spots. You're like, what? You walk over and it, it's grubs, you know. Oh, so I go and get you know pesticide and put it on it. Or, or you drive away for vacation, you come back and the sprinkler system malfunctioned, and so there's, it's all brown and it should have been green, you know. And oh, I mean that's how it is with grass. It, one day it's great, the next day it's bad, and it just can change like that and be here and then it's gone. And you know that's how we are. We're like grass. Human beings are shining and flourishing in their glory one day, the next day they're in a the hospital, and the next day they're gone. It's just how it is with human life. We're like grass. We can come and go quickly. I mean, how many of you, let me ask you, know the first name of all your great-grandparents? Maybe a couple. There's probably a few of you who do genealogies and you're into it, but, you know, I, I don't know. Some guy came over from Europe somewhere and, you know, started my family. I think his name was Rennie. I, I don't know, but I had some ancestor. I mean, you know, we don't know who they are. That's just great-grandparents, let alone the people beyond that. And they came, they went, they had their life, and they're gone, and we don't know, and frankly, we don't care. We just move on with our lives. Or how about some of the great names from history? Charlemagne, Aristotle, Genghis Khan. You're like, oh yeah, I heard of those guys. Oh, that's good. What do you know about them? If I were to ask you to come up and give you this microphone and say, tell me everything you can say about Genghis Khan, that you know. You know what, what, do you know what century he lived in? I mean, I, I don't know if I do, actually. You know, how much could you really say? I mean, he was a, you know, had hordes of people and he raided things, I think. I mean, we don't even know these people. And these are the great names of history. And unless you're a historian who specializes in classical Greek figures, you're really probably not going to be able to say much about Aristotle. And these are the great names of history. And they're already just kind of, you know, gone and who knows. Here's the really scary one. 200 years from now, will anybody know that you ever existed? I mean, really. In the year 2204, will anyone know or frankly care that you were on planet Earth? I mean, maybe if you're well-published, you might have a footnote in some book. Or maybe if you have a descendant who's really into genealogies, uh, you, know, you might be in some genealogical record somewhere. But you know what? We're here and we're gone and nobody really cares. I'm looking out at you and I just see grass. I just see, I just see a lawn. You're looking up here, you see just the stage and just a blade of grass sticking up. That's all you're looking at is grass. 
And, and it comes and it goes. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. All of our great accomplishments, all the mighty things that we set in motion as human beings in this life, all the things we brag about and strut about and point to, you know, at best it's like wildflowers in a field. You know, just beautiful, yeah, but you know, tomorrow it's gone. It's here and it's gone and, and that's how our, our lives go. Uh, my daughter uh, likes to pick flowers. We go for uh, rides, bike rides in Wampatuck State Park and when we're coming back, you know, she feels bad that mom wasn't there, so she wants to pick flowers for mom to make her feel better. So uh, we'll stop by a field, and she'll get these wildflowers and pick them, and we'll very carefully transport them on the bike, you know, bring them back to mom, and mom, you know, says, oh, look at the flowers. You know, she puts them in a vase, and you come out the next morning, and they're wilted. They're gone. You just throw them in the trash. You know, that was that. What are you going to do? Let's let them sit there and, you know, wither right in front of you? And that's how our glory is. Our greatest accomplishments are here and then, and then they're, they're gone. Just like that. Uh, we try to build things that will last. We try to build great things for ourselves. We try to build companies that, that will stand the test of time. You know, great uh, companies that will never fall like Lotus and... Uh, Deck and Bradley's. You know, companies that will never, ever go away. Do you remember Bradley's? You used to shop there. Yeah, a couple years ago. You shopped there many years, and now you haven't thought about Bradley's ever since it closed. You know, what kind of customers? What kind of loyalty is that? And, and it's gone, and we don't think about Bradley's, and it's just the next door and the next door. Great human ideas are soon replaced by the next idea, which is replaced by the next idea. And people look back at those other ideas, which were great in their day, and they laugh. You know, Freudian theory. And for those of you who are in the, the counseling field, I mean, are there any real Freudians around today? There's no Freudians. No one's like, I am 100% dyed-in-the-wool Freudian analyst. I mean, no. It's like, oh, come on, people don't do that. You know, we, it's eclecticism now. You pick a little bit of this theory and a little bit of that, and you, you form a new theory. I mean, and that's how, you know, the psychological theories change, the literary theories change, the sometimes theological theories change in flux with the times and they come and they go and human ideas are replaced and, and it changes. Churches rise and fall. South Shore Baptist, a great church we've built. No, nothing's great. All human things that we build come and go. Our ministries, our lives, because all people are grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Surely the people are grass, it says in verse 7. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. God's word endures. And whatever is built upon God's word, be it a ministry, a life, a marriage, the things that are built on God's word have an eternal consequence to them because God's word lasts and everything else is just grass and flowers. It's kind of a funny phrase. You know, we say God's word stands forever. I go, mm-hmm, yeah, that's right. But, you know, I, I stopped and I thought about it. I thought God's word stands forever. And I was thinking about that, that idea. I mean, what is a word, really? What is a word? It's if there's, I can't think of anything more insubstantial than a word. I mean, can you hold it in your hand? You know, I mean, I'm saying words right now, but what is it? It's like sound waves. It's hitting your ear. 
And then your ear, your nerves in your ear are somehow translating that into a thought in your brain. But you know, like, what is a word? You can't hold it, you can't look at it. Or, or it's pieces of ink on a paper, and you could take it and you could rip it, you could throw it in the trash, you could burn it. You know, so, I mean, a word is a very insubstantial thing. And to think that God is so great, God is so majestic, God is so awesome in His power, that even His mere words stand forever. Even the mere Word of God will last longer than the Roman Colosseum. And long after the pyramids of Giza have returned to the dust from which they were made, the Word of God will endure. It stands forever. Even the the flimsy words, even the mere words of God have eternal significance. They last forever. And what they accomplish stands because God is eternal and even His words are eternal. Now this would have been great uh, news for the people of Israel who read Isaiah 40. Because you remember this uh, prophecy was spoken uh, with a view to the Israelites in exile in Babylon. And when they were in exile in Babylon, they probably would have been awed by the, the glory of Babylon. The great ziggurats that were built, Nebuchadnezzar's hanging gardens, which were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the great Babylonian troops that were conquering the known world. They would have looked around at that as exiles in Babylon and said, wow, Babylon's pretty great. Babylon's going to endure. How can Babylon ever fall? I mean, look at Babylon. It's amazing. And the Word of God comes and says, no, no, don't worry. God's going to rescue you from Babylon. Babylon's going to fall. And and I think it would have been easy to say, yeah, that's just talk. That's just, you know, the prophets talking. No, no, it's not just talk. It's God's Word. Babylon, that's just flowers and grass. But God's Word stands forever. And if God says, Israel, you're going to be reconciled to me and you're going to be released from Babylon, then it's going to happen. Because whatever God says happens. God's Word stands. So when we talk about God's Word enduring forever, it's not only that the written Word of God as a book lasts, which is true, but it's also this idea that God's Word is living and active And whatever God's Word establishes in the world lasts. Whatever is built on God's Word and comes out of God's Word lasts. The idea here, I think, is like in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the heavens and the earth. How does He do it? He speaks. You know, the famous line we all know, and God said, let there be light. And, you know, look, we still got it. It's still here. You know, the light's here. We have light. Light endures because God's Word created it and upholds it. Or if you fast forward a couple chapters in Genesis to chapter 12 when God calls Abraham to follow him and he says, Abraham, I want you to leave your country. I want you to pack up and I want you to go to a land I'm going to show you. And, And thus God sets in motion His plan for saving humanity because out of Abraham come the Israelites and out of the Israelites come Jesus and out of Jesus comes the people of God. So God starts His plan with Abraham and it begins with a word. Abraham, go. Here's what I'm going to do. And if God says He's going to do it, it will happen. Because God's word stands and what God says endures and what God does lasts. And the prophets of the Old Testament, if you've read the prophets of the Old Testament, there's this funny little phrase you always get with the prophets. And the word of the Lord came to... Isaiah, and the word of the Lord came to Amos, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah. I think it was like a heat-seeking missile or something, you know. The prophet's walking along and the word of the God comes to him, you know, pow, and 
They go, oh, well, the word of the God came to me. God happened to me. His, his word came. And then the prophets speak the word that came to him, And whatever they say stands and it happens. So God's word is it's not just not only the written word, which is true, the Bible, this is God's word, but it's what also what God does through this word, what he accomplishes through this living word. It, it stands and it endures. Or I think of the New Testament, the life of Jesus Christ. Whatever he said stood and endured. Remember that story? I love that story when Jesus was on that fishing trip with the, uh, the disciples. They're going across the lake and a big storm came up. It must have been a wicked storm because these disciples were fishermen and they were freaked out. I mean, it was like the perfect storm. They thought they were going to die and they're all you know, losing it. And there's Jesus asleep in the boat and they wake him up. We're going to die. We're going to die. And Jesus gets up and he says, Peace. Be still. And... It's still. Because he spoke. Because God spoke and it stands and it is. Because God's word endures. And what is accomplished through the word of God endures. Jesus would say, come out. The demons would come out. Jesus would say, be healed. The leprosy would go away. All right, remember that story where Jesus came to his friend Lazarus? I love this one. And he, uh, his friend Lazarus died. And about four days after he died, Jesus shows up at the funeral kind of late. And uh, he says, hey, roll the stone away. They said, hey, Master, he's been in there for four, four days. You know, we don't want to roll the stone away. They said, roll it away. So he rolls the stone away. And what does Jesus do? He speaks into that tomb, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes to life because Christ's word stands and it creates things. It, it brings reality into existence. And, you know, out of the tomb comes old Lazarus wrapped in his grave clothes. And they, Jesus says, take his grave clothes off, you know, let him... Take a shower, get something to eat. I mean, poor guy's been dead for four days, you know. <laughs> Let him take care of him. He's fine now. Like, how can that be? Because God's word stands. Or I think of that famous word of Jesus on the cross when his arms were stretched out and he said, It is finished. And it was finished. And my sins were paid for forever. And whenever I wonder about that, God, do you still love me? I just think of those words. It is finished. And if Jesus says my sins have been paid for on the cross, then it is finished. Because whatever God says stands. And the same Word of God is happening today. The Word of God is still going forth today in power, changing, transforming, doing miracles today. And especially we see it in the preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ today. In fact, I want to have you turn over to one other passage. It's in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. It's on page 1200 in your pew Bible. Page 1200. 1 Peter chapter 1. And here Peter is talking about God's Word establishing things through the preaching of the Gospel. Now what I want to do is I'm going to read to you 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 22 to 25 and give you a little assignment. Is here in these three verses you're going to see a chain of events. And the chain is going to go backwards. So we're going to start at the end of the chain and as we read through the passage we'll sort of move backwards through the logical chain from the end of it back to the beginning. And, and he's going to make a series of arguments and it's going to refer back to the next one. You'll see what I mean in a minute. And I want you to see if you can pick up this 
backwards flow of argument in verses 22 to 25 and see the different links in the chain. So let me just read it and then we'll go through it. Peter says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And do you see, see the chain of uh, reasoning here? The first link in the chain, which is the final link, is in verse 22. And I think it's in that phrase, love one another deeply. You see that? That's the command. That's where Peter's trying to make his readers come to. Let's love each other in the church. Let's not just be cordial. Let's not just be civil and nice and polite. Let's love each other deeply from the heart. You know, when we see each other in church, let's give each other a hug and mean it. And, and let's really listen to each other and let's really care for each other. And if we have a need in the church, let's meet it. Let's love each other deeply from the heart. Not just civility and politeness, but real love in the church. Okay, so that's the command. And then in verse 23, he takes us back one link in the chain. For, the reason you should do this is for because you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So the reason we should love each other is because of something prior to that, which is you have been born again. Now that's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? Isn't it? Born again. You ever heard of born again Christians? And uh, it would, that, that phrase has a pretty negative connotation in our culture. You think of born-again Christians, you go, ah, I don't want to be one of those. I mean, they're kind of really religious and weird, and I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go there, being a born-again Christian. I'll just be a different kind of Christian, not a born-again Christian. Thank you. But, um, you know, I, I think we have to kind of take all of our associations with that phrase and set them aside for a second and really understand what the Bible means. Because this is a very biblical concept to be born again. In fact, to be a Christian, you have to be born again. There is, in the Bible, there's no category other than born again Christian for Christian. It's just part of being, it's just assumed. If you're going to be a Christian, well, you must have been born again because you have to be born again to get to be a Christian. And in fact, this isn't Peter's idea. Peter says you have been born again. But Peter wasn't the one who came up with this language. You know, where did Peter get this language? From Jesus. So, you know, you don't like the phrase. You've got to go talk to Jesus about that because he came up with it. Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. So if you want to enter the kingdom of God, if you want to enter heaven, you have to be born again. So it's part of the Christian life. Every true Christian in a biblical sense can say, yes, I've been born again. So, you know, what is it? I mean, obviously it's a metaphor. Fortunately for our mothers, it's a metaphor. Um, He's talking figuratively here. What is he talking about? And uh, The idea is to become a Christian involves experiencing a radical transformation of your spiritual nature that's so great it's like you've become a different person. Uh, the Bible calls it becoming a new creation. The Bible calls it being raised to new life. So there's a lot of different images to describe this experience. But basically what it means is that before I was born again, uh, I was Jeremy doing things my way. I was the boss, I was in charge, I did what I wanted to do. Did I believe in God? Maybe, but it was probably kind of an intellectual 
belief. It, it didn't really you know, touch my heart and my life. It didn't affect the way I lived day to day. Uh, I did what I wanted to, and I made the rules, and I didn't feel guilty about it, and I didn't really care. It was all about me, and, and that's how I lived my life. And did I want to read the Bible? Did I want to go to church? I mean, no, my mom dragged me to church. You know, why would I want to do that? And, and that was my outlook on life. And then something happened, and I was born again. I became a new person, and it's like my whole outlook changed. Suddenly, I now love Jesus Christ. I didn't say I believe in him, because I believe in him, that's for sure. But I also love him. I've never met the guy, and I'm in love with him. And I'm ready to die for Jesus. Now, what is this? You know, I wasn't raised this way. Where did this come from? It's like I have a totally different brain. I've been rewired. And, and I love the Bible. It's, uh, the Bible makes sense to me now. I read it and I go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Whereas before it didn't make that much sense. And I want to be in church with God's people. And I don't want to sin anymore. And I feel guilty about it when I do. Whereas before I would, I would be a jerk and I wouldn't care. I'd rationalize it and blame it on other people. And now suddenly I feel guilty when I act rude and, and untactful and nasty. And all of my, when I commit sins, I feel guilty about it. Like, what happened to me? You've been born again. You're a new person. You've come to spiritual life. And, and this is fundamental to the Christian experience. If you haven't been born again, you aren't a Christian. There's just no other way around it. You say, wow, I mean, that sounds cool. I mean, how do you, how do you get that? I, I would love to be born again. I mean, how does it work? Well, let's go to the first link in the chain. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Here we go. Through the living and enduring Word of God. It's God's Word that creates this new spiritual reality within our hearts. You got it? So, love each other deeply. Live the Christian life. Why? Because you're a new person. You've been born again. And how'd that happen? Through the living and enduring Word of God. And then, ah, oh, verse 24, he quotes Isaiah 40. Yes! All men are like grass. And all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. So if I try to build my spirituality or my religion on my own efforts, if my spirituality is based on, you know, I'm a good person and you know, I go to church sometimes and I, I've never murdered anybody and I believe there's a God out there somewhere, all that is, all that do-gooderism is, is flowers and grass. I mean, it's nice and if you look at it and you say it's beautiful. The problem is it just doesn't last. And it, you can't build an eternal destiny on it. No, the only true religion that lasts is that which God builds in us by His Word and through His Holy Spirit. Anything built on God's Word lasts. So God speaks through His words, the study of the Word. Maybe you hear a sermon or study the Bible yourself. And that creates new birth which then causes me to follow Jesus and to live for Him in a new way. Or to use the imagery of Lazarus. I, I think the story of Lazarus is a great picture. Remember how Jesus spoke? Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. There's the word spoken. And then new spiritual life comes into Lazarus. And then because that spiritual life is in him, he's able to obey Jesus and walk out of the tomb. And that's the same thing. Jesus speaks through His word. He changes my heart. And because my heart is changed, I'm now enabled to believe in Jesus and to follow Him. And that's very important because I think a lot of times when evangelicals talk about being born again, they have it backwards. They say, believe in Jesus so that you can be born again. No. 
We're born again by God's power so that we can believe in Jesus. Because if God doesn't do something in my heart and give me a heart transplant, I'm never going to turn to God. I'm just too dead in my sins. So God changes my heart and that enables me to freely choose Christ and to walk in His ways. So our lives, our spiritual lives, everything in our lives has to be built on the Word of God. Whatever religion we have, whatever spirituality we hold to, it's just flowers and grass unless it's built on the Word of God which lasts forever. So, we should ask ourselves, are our lives being built on God's Word? Is my life built on God's Word? Let's start here in First Peter. Let's ask a very blunt question. Are you born again? Are you? That's an important question because I, I think that there's a trap we fall into here in New England in our culture here in the Northeast. And that is there, there is a lot of organized religion. And it's easy to think that because you've participated in the rituals of the church, that therefore you're a Christian. You know, hey, I was baptized as an infant. Or I was dedicated as an infant. I went to CCD. I went to Sunday school. I went to vacation Bible school. I've taken communion. I'm a nice person. Uh, therefore, I guess I'm a Christian. And, and you think, that must be what makes me a Christian. But that's not what makes a person a Christian. You can do all those things. You can, you can perform all the outward rituals of the church to a T, but that doesn't make you born again. That doesn't make a person a Christian. It's very important to understand that you can go to your grave doing all those things and have no idea who Jesus really is. Because being a Christian is having this new experience of being born again. I was talking to this lady in the church uh, this last week. I said, how would you become a Christian? She says, well, it's kind of a funny story. She says, I always thought I was one. I was raised in the church, went through all the rituals, crossed all the I's, dotted all the T's, did all the things the church supposed, told me to do. I tried to be nice. I thought I was fine. She says, and then I had a problem. I got into this Bible study. You know, oh, that's a mistake right there. You know, once you start opening the Bible, you're in trouble. She started reading the Bible, actually what the Bible taught. He said, I started feeling bad about myself, but in a good way, like realizing that, you know, I, I'm a sinful person and I can't fix myself by doing human rituals. You know, that's just grass and flowers. And she realized that she really didn't know Christ. She, she knew religion and she knew the fine points of the institutions, but she didn't know Christ. She hadn't been born again. And it was through the study of the Bible that God gave her that gift of new birth and now she really has come to know Jesus. She is a, truly a Christian. And you know, it didn't happen to her until she was in her 30s. It, it happens at different times in our lives. It happens, basically it happens when God wants it to happen because He's sovereign and it's up to Him ultimately to make that happen. And so we have to make sure that we really are Christians. So let me ask you again, are you born again? And if you say, I don't know, I just want to say to you, man, you now have a mission. Get born again. This is more important than paying your mortgage. This is more important than finding a new job. This is more important than finding a date. This is the most important thing in your life is to make sure that you know God and that you're reconciled to Him. So what do you do? Go home. Read your Bible. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me, Pastor. I don't care. Read it. Let the Word of God change your life. Go for a walk on Nantasca Beach tonight. Cry out to the Lord. Jesus I want to believe in you. I want my sins to be forgiven. And be confident that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And cry out to God for your salvation. And let the Word of God do its work in your life. 
It may take time. It may take a couple months. doesn't matter. This is your mission. This is your mission right now. It's to find God and to know, know God and to be sure that you can say, I am born again. I am a true Christian. Christ is in my life. You need to be able to say that. And then for us who are Christians, uh, we've got to stick with the Word. You not only become a Christian through the Word, you grow as a Christian through the Word. Again, if I could just be really blunt, uh, this is a fact. I won't grow as a Christian unless I'm reading the Bible. Period. There's just no other way. It's not like if I don't read, study the Bible or hear the Bible, I'm going to grow more slowly. No, you just can't grow. In fact, the other thing will happen, you'll backslide. It's just inevitable. I need God's Word in my life filling me all the time. I don't care how much how busy your life is, man, you just got to find five minutes a day, three minutes a day, just to read a little bit. God's Word is so powerful, but it's fine time in the Word. And I know this is hard, because some of you are like, yeah, I'm not a big reader, not a big student. You know, reading, study, school really wasn't my thing. That's okay. Get in the Word. Anyway, I, I was talking to another lady in the church recently, and uh, she's been through some really pretty gut-wrenching trials this year, pretty... Her, this last year has pretty much been hell for her. It's been a really hard year. But uh, during that time, uh, she felt God was saying, read the Word more. And she really hasn't read the Word a lot because she told me she has dyslexia. And she doesn't remember a lot of things. You know, she's one of those kids in school, you know, you hear it, and the next second it's out of your brain. She couldn't remember it. She couldn't remember what she had, what she had read. And she's like, you know, ah, you know, I, I've never really read the Bible. But she felt God saying anyway, read the Word. And so... She decided to do it. Even though she said, I'm not going to remember anything, it's not going to stick with me, I'm going to read it. And she said it has been the most transforming thing in her life. It's been what's got her through this horrible year with some very bad things that have happened in her life. It was studying the Word. In fact, she's gotten so bold in the Word now that she came up to me the other day and started arguing with me about something I preached in a sermon. Uh, isn't that great? She came to me, because there's, there's an interpretive issue, and I said, this is kind of a sticky interpretive issue. Some scholars go this way with it, but I, I think it's probably more like this. And she came up afterwards. She said, no, it's that way. You missed it. And, and then she started quoting the Bible to try to argue her case. It was great. She was wrong, but you know, I mean, it was... It's great. <laughs> to think that someone who, who, with a learning disability, with a learning disability who was not consider herself a scholar, would feel bold enough to come and argue with, you know, the pastor about the Bible. Like, where does that come from? Where do you get that kind of temerity? And it comes from the Word. Because when you're in the Word, you, you don't ultimately need a pastor. Because God will teach you from His Word. And I help, I enlighten you, but you don't need me ultimately. You need this. And hopefully, if I'm doing my job, I'm just giving you more of this. So it's not like I'm giving you something you don't already have. I'm just using my gift to help you study the Word more. And you don't need a pastor if you have the Word, ultimately. And the Word is in her. So study the Word and do it whenever you can. Are we building our families on the Word? Are we teaching our children the Word of God if you have kids? Are we uh, building our business decisions on the Word? The way we approach our business and our career and our ethics in the workplace, and the way we handle difficulties. Is it based on the Word? Is it informed by the Word? Um, our relationships, the way we date, the way we handle marriage, the way we handle fallouts with people. Do, do we deal with conflict in ways that are based on the Word of God? Um, and are we building this church on the Word of God? I'll tell you, this is something you need to pray for me for, because... 
Uh, Sasher Baptist is, this is a really fun place to be right now. This is a great season in this church. There's so much vibrance, growth, and life. We have, we have problems in this church, but by and large, they're mostly problems related to growth. You know, we need more parking, and this ministry needs that space, and that ministry needs that space because they're growing. I mean, this is great. I mean, these are fun problems to have, and I just give, you know, praise God for that. But the problem for me is I, I enjoy working through those problems and trying to figure them out. You know, I'm a guy. Guys like to solve problems. They like to fix things. So, you know, I'm like, oh, okay, let's see. Maybe if this class went there and that one over there, and maybe I'll shoot an email off to that guy with that suggestion, and we'll work out this trouble over here. And it's easy for me to become absorbed in the management and maintenance and solving the growth issues. And that's, that's fun to do. But, you know, God has called me, first and foremost, to preach the Word. And to pray. And every hour I spend thinking about a growth problem in the church, trying to figure out how to manage something, is just one hour I didn't spend praying over the Word of God to preach to you and to study it deeper. And sometimes, you know, studying the Word of God is hard work. It's not always fun. I mean, it's like a wrestling match. You've got to get in there and, and not only are you trying to figure it out, but then you start reading the Word, of course, and God starts hitting you and saying, Jeremy, what about that in your life? So it's a painful thing to study the Word of God. So you need to pray for me that I will keep my focus on preaching the Word of God first and foremost. Are there other things I have to do as a pastor? Yep, but they're secondary to bringing the Word of God to you and praying for you. As the, as the Apostle said, let us attend ourselves to the preaching of the Word and to prayer. And that's what I want to do as your pastor. So, you know, get right in my face if you need to. Say, Pastor! You studying enough this week? Stay in the Word. Because that's what I need to do too. And as the Word is preached from the pulpit, as the Word is studied in the small group Bible studies, as the Word is taught in the Sunday schools, as the Word is discussed in one-on-one relationships, the church will be strengthened and grown. That's my strategy for church growth. The Word. I wish I had a better gimmick is I could sell it in a book and hold seminars. But that's my gimmick. That's all I have is the Word, okay? And, you know, besides that, I don't really have any strategies for building the church. So it's just the Word of God. Pray that I'll stay with it. Because everything else is grass and flowers. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the Word of our God stands forever.